отношения, афары, Hello, my name is Ben Horton, and you're listening to the International Affairs Podcast from Chatham House. International Affairs is a leading journal of international relations, published six times per year in association with Oxford University Press. In the September issue, the major focus is a collection of articles on international political economy, titled Crisis and Change in the Global Economy. Today I'm joined by two authors who contributed to this section. With me in the Chatham House Media Studio is Jeff Schweroff, Professor of International Political Economy at the LSE and a research associate at their Systemic Risk Centre. What we've seen in, in a growing literature about the emergence of populism in the West, and particularly in the United States, is that a lot of it had to do with growing discontent amongst households who were struggling with globalization. And reaching us by phone from Melbourne, Australia, is Andrew Walter, Professor of International Relations at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. A lot of the, the discussion about the so-called left behind in the United States, which is focused on the long-term structural factors, hasn't paid sufficient attention to that evaporation of not only wealth, but in a sense, the aspirational middle class and the whole American dream. Jeff, Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Ben. Your article is titled Banking Crises and Politics, A Long-Run Perspective. It's 10 years since the UK's last major financial crash, but the political ramifications are still being dealt with. Your article takes a much longer view about the relationship between economic crisis and politics. Could you take us through the major arguments? Sure. So we wanted to understand why it is that severe banking crises had become increasingly important or consequential for the way uh, that modern governments implement policy and how citizens respond. And what we came away with was a view that governments have changed the way that they responded to crises by providing more extensive, comprehensive, and costly interventions following crises. And in Alongside of that, we've seen that voters have also changed the way that they evaluate what governments have done, both in terms of financial stability and the policies that they implement to deal with that. And what we argue in the paper is that modern voters, as opposed to what occurred in the previous era, are much more inclined to punish governments in office when crises occur. Moreover, they also are increasingly uh, disturbed by what they view as the distributional implications of these financial rescues, particularly when they're perceived as unfair and with regards to how the cost of the bailouts or the rescues are distributed over time. The reason we think that these particular voter uh, responses have changed over time is due to the rise of what we call in the paper great expectations. Essentially, modern voters are much more demanding in terms of their expectations with respect to financial stability in terms of how governments uh, reform in that regard. These changes in voter expectations, we suggest, are driven largely by both the growth in the level of middle-class wealth, as well as their increasing exposure to asset markets, particularly pensions. 
Andrew, do you have anything you want to add at this point? Or I'd just like to add to Jeff's very good summary, just the general point that I guess we, when we started out in this long-run study, we needed to look back in, in the past to look at the policy and political consequences, the aftermath in a broader sense of financial crises. And I guess we didn't know the answer at the beginning. And what we found was, as Jeff said, that over time, both the policy interventions became far more extensive and the degree of political consequences, particularly in terms of political turnover and volatility after financial crises happened, was rising quite sharply in both cases over time. So, so we, you know, we wanted to look into the, the causes of these things, and we're still investigating, but as Jeff, Jeff says, the, the consequences of rising wealth in particular, and I think the difficulty and the costliness of the interventions um, that, that occur when governments try to protect this wealth are what we've thought have become increasingly consequential for politics. I just wondered if we could clarify at the outset, are we talking about a trend that you observe in the UK or in the West? Or do you think there are um, certain elements of it that are a global phenomenon? Yeah, so what's remarkable about this is that when you look at the data in terms of how uh, wealth has, has grown over time, that this is actually a global phenomenon that across both advanced and emerging and, and even some developing low-income developing countries, what we see is that the level of, of household wealth has increased significantly, particularly since uh, the early parts of the 1970s. And while the composition of, of household portfolios in emerging and developing countries is somewhat different. So in, in advanced countries, uh, we're much more exposed to things uh, like pension assets and in terms of defined contribution plans, as well as stock ownership and so on. And in emerging and developing countries, they tend to hold large portions of their wealth in, in banking deposits. What we see is that in both of these circumstances, this growing wealth and exposure to the financial system, what political economists often call financialization, a part of financialization, has made both groups of countries, advanced and emerging or developing countries, ha have these types of dynamics where voters are, have these great expectations about what governments should do. And, and alongside of that, I should mention that it's not just about wealth, but it's also that governments took uh, increasing responsibility for the financial uh, system, for financial stability, uh, through the creation of, of regulatory frameworks and through explicit political promises politicians made in campaigning for election in democracies. Yeah, just to add to that, um, so we're at the moment mainly focusing on democracies. Uh, so as Jeff says, this is this is a phenomenon that we're detecting right across quite you know substantial variations in levels of economic uh, development. But we're only focusing on democracies and where where voters can sanction governments uh, when when they don't protect the wealth uh, that Jeff says is, has been increasing quite sharply, particularly since the 1970s in many countries. They're sanctioned particularly badly. One of the really paradoxical things I think that we've detected is that even when governments do intervene, uh, they tend not to be systematically rewarded for that kind of intervention. Um, and as Jeff said, uh, some of the ways in which governments intervene in terms of the costliness of the bailouts, but also the distributional consequences, what voters perceive as unfair bailouts, even when in many cases they're benefiting through that effective protection of wealth, 
that the, that the voters end up uh, sanctioning governments, even when they are intervening, at increasing cost and in an increasingly extensive manner to protect the banking system. You write about this idea of great expectations among portions of the public, in which society expects politicians to ensure their wealth against external threats or crises. And forgive me if this is a misreading, but you indicate in your article that you uh, that this particularly developed this idea of great expectation during the Keynesian period of a mixed economy between 1945 and around the late 70s. And I wondered whether the economic turn that we saw after that period, the neoliberal kind of deregulation of markets, financial services that continued um, in the UK, it began with the Conservatives and continued up through the Blair years of the Labour Party. I wondered whether this great expectation has become untenable for politicians as a result of deregulation, in a sense of as a result of their policies. And related to that, that, what levers are there that politicians can pull in the modern world to ensure that wealth is realistically protected. Yeah, so I guess one of one of the nuances in our work, and there has there has been quite a lot of work uh, done in the past on the emergence of uh, great expectations in another sense, um, particularly after 1945 and the wake of World War II and the Great Depression. Uh, the notion of embedded liberalism and uh, the argument uh, that I think is pretty much a consensus in the literature on political economy that that governments had to accept, uh, again, among and particularly among the advanced industrial democracies of the day, um, increasing responsibility for the stabilization of income, employment and growth. There was implicit in that a degree of wealth protection, but, but not a very explicit degree of... Um, focus on on wealth protection in particular. And indeed, during that period, there were very high levels of high rates of taxation, top income and wealth taxes were very high by contemporary standards uh, and by the standards of the 19th century. So there was an element of wealth suppression uh, in a number of countries, at least at the very top end of the wealth distribution. So what we've found since the 1970s, as these economies have become more financialized, there's increasing pressure, as we, as we say, from below for governments to respond in periods of financial instability with policies uh, that protect this growing wealth and especially the wealth of the middle classes. So this is an argument um, that's focused on on mass pressure rather than pressure or what some people would call political capture by the financial elite. Of course, from the time of Thatcher and Reagan, there has been attempts on the part of so-called neoliberal governments to talk down uh, not just these expectations about government protection in finance, but also more generally, um, reliance on the government to stabilize the economy and provide welfare services and so on. I think one of the strong implications of our work is that these attempts to talk down great expectations, at least with respect to the protection of middle-class wealth, have not been successful. So we find governments in the early periods of big financial crises, and the UK is no exception here, people like Mervyn King and others talking about the need to ensure that interventions didn't produce moral hazard and a reluctance to intervene and indeed to nationalize Northern Rock in uh, the the latter part of 2007, uh, eventually the government and the Bank of England were forced to face reality and and nationalize Northern Rock and and intervene in ways that they never envisaged in 2007. Hmm. In regards to your other question about 
what can governments do in terms of measures to protect wealth in a, in a modern era of financialization. And I think that the toolkit that they have available to them is, is fairly well known to, uh, to policymakers. They, know, they, are, they are aware that in order to insulate uh, middle class voters, but also just in general, the uh, citizens more broadly, uh, from financial instability that they need to provide microeconomic interventions, things like liquidity to banks, things like uh, guarantees for the value of, of assets, deposit insurance, for instance, which, you know, during the crisis in this country, but also ar- around the globe, you know, policymakers implemented uh, measures to hike up the level of, of deposit insurance to reassure individuals that their savings were safe. You know, but in, in the paper, I mean, I, I think that it should be clear that, you know, I think in general, Andrew and I are, are I think I can speak for him, are relatively agnostic about whether or not governments should protect wealth in the modern era. Um, you know, essentially what we try to suggest in the paper is that while governments are inclined to do so, as Andrew mentioned in, in, in some of his comments just a moment ago, that there are actually negative consequences, that essentially that citizens' expectations about wealth protection become entrenched, and this actually creates a, a moral hazard, uh, essentially ramping up the level of pressure in the system to protect wealth, and thus creating these repeating cycles over time of, of, of asset market booms where governments are forced to intervene uh, with in- increasing amounts of, of, of costs for voters uh, more broadly. And these costs, we do make the point clearly in the paper, and Andrew said earlier, that these costs are often distributed unequally across uh, societies, re- resulting in, in rising voter discontentment and frustration. So just picking up on that idea of public discontent, I just wondered whether we could use the most recent major economic crisis, the 2007 to 2009 financial crisis, as a kind of case study for the relationship between these crises and the political system. And I wondered whether you could see this current age that we're in of what some people describe as electoral shocks the election of Donald Trump in the US, the vote for Brexit in the UK. Is it possible to to read these as a response to the financial crisis and as a response to people who feel that their expectations, whether they're too great or not, are not being met from from an economic point of view? Absolutely. Uh, that, that would be my view. I mean, one of the core points of the paper is that essentially that even when policymakers do intervene with great speed and, and decisiveness, that voters are often still frustrated by the distributional implications of what occurs when the governments do intervene. And you mentioned the case of Donald Trump. I mean, the case there is one where the perception of, of most of many voters was that the cost of the bailouts were distributed unequally. And, you know, the data actually bear this out in terms of the amount of increase in wealth inequality in the United States after the crisis was the greatest in its history uh, for which we actually have data on, on, on American wealth inequality. And, and part of the reason for that is that, you know, the, the, the benefits of this particular rescue accrued largely to wealthy households. And one of the measures that, that sticks out in my mind in particular is the unwillingness of the American administration, this is the Obama administration at the time, to push forcefully for relief for indebted households with respect to their mortgages. So there was a proposal that was put in place at the time to enable households who were struggling with their debts to have these uh, written down in some way, write down the principle of, of their debts. This would have benefited uh, these uh, households, many who were often at the lower income of the distribution, 
and signal that the ba- that the rescue was actually going to be somewhat more balanced, not just skewed towards creditor interest, but also towards debtor interest. And the Obama administration, for a variety of reasons, failed to actually push this through. Now, this had huge implications after the crisis, because what we've seen in, in a growing literature about the emergence of populism in the West, and in particular in the United States, is that a lot of it had to do with growing discontent amongst households who were struggling with globalization, either you know what's so-called China shock with respect to trade, or technological innovation and automation, and so on. And these households, rather than being able to to move away from industries and locations in the United States to other parts of the U, where they were struggling, to other parts of the U.S. where the industries were thriving, they were unable to do so because many of these households were underwater with respect to their mortgages. They were in negative equity. So one of the implications of the the lack of, of balance in the in the rescue is that. Because these households were not treated with with measures that enabled them uh, to deal with their high levels of indebtedness, they were unable to move from uncompetitive industries where they were facing these pressures. And as a result, you know, when the time came in 2016 where an individual came and, and vent and, and voiced their frustrations, they turned to that individual. And you know, we can we can see the seeds of this frustration and this populism precisely in that failure. I would argue to implement a more distributionally fair intervention. Can I just add a bit to that? Yeah, so so I, I agree completely with what Jeff says, and I, I just emphasise that I do think that the Trump and the Brexit phenomena are, are a complex result of long-term structural factors like technological change, the rise of China, uh, globalisation more generally, and so on. So those structural factors alongside the aftermath of the 2007 to 10 crisis in countries like the UK and the United States have combined to produce these effects. And as Jeff said, the growing concentration of wealth, and this is particularly stark in the United States, the changing composition of middle-class wealth, increasingly in pensions, increasingly in defined contribution rather than defined benefit pensions uh, since the 1980s. So pensions, in other words, the value of which is increasingly exposed to market fluctuations and which tend to fall quite sharply uh, in the aftermath of big financial crises. But the most important component of household wealth increasingly is real estate, and that real estate is highly leveraged. And so, as Jeff says, when people increasingly see that wealth evaporate uh, in very deep crises, such as happened after 2007 in both countries, and particularly at the bottom end of the the so-called middle class in the United States, uh, we've seen effectively net wealth shrink to close to zero. For the bottom 25% of American households, it's in negative territory. It's in the range of minus ten dollars to $15,000 $15, per household in the United States now. So they've, they've lost what wealth they had, uh, modest amounts of wealth before the crisis. But for substantial parts of the middle class, that highly leveraged housing wealth went up very rapidly before the crisis during the boom period, but then effectively evaporated for a number of them, and they're very angry. So I think a lot of the the discussion about the so-called left behind in the United States, which is focused on the long-term structural factors, 
hasn't paid sufficient attention to that evaporation of not only wealth, but in a sense, the aspirational middle class and the whole American dream that's wrapped up in that. Yeah, just to add to what Andrew's saying, to turn the attention a little bit to the UK, I mean, one of the things that we saw in, in the UK in the aftermath of the of the crisis was efforts by the then new Labour government uh, to introduce uh, a a greater amount of, of, of balance to financial rescue by increasing the or introducing a new top rate of, of income tax at 45% initially, and then they raised it up to actually 50p, so a, a, a top rate of 50%, uh, which at the time they tried to suggest was actually an effort to to make the the, the bailouts or the cost of the, the bailouts uh, distributed much more equally across society. Now, historically, we know that top income tax rates in the UK under the say, previous Labour governments in the 1970s and, uh, and conservative governments was in the 80% range, right? So essentially these these efforts by by the Labour government at the time to to move in that distribution were small in, in comparison to what had what we seen in the past. Now, voters in the recent election in this country in 2017 may have been attracted well, part of the reason why they've been attracted to people like Jeremy Corbyn's campaign is that he actually had pushed for an increase in the top marginal rate of tax in terms of what he would offer, but also lowering the threshold where he would apply significantly from about, what, £150,000 down to £85,000. So, you know, voters even in, in this country are increasingly attracted to to politicians who who are, who are, who are tugging at that particular sense of frustration that voters have in economies after the financial crisis, that the bailouts were distributed unequally, and as a result of that, they're turning to these politicians who are offering these types of policies that I think offer offer voice to their frustrations. Just one footnote to that. There's also a substantial intergenerational conflict dimension to this whole story, and that's especially stark in the UK. It's quite clear that both in income and wealth terms, that over the, the last 30 years or so in the United Kingdom, most of the gains have accrued increasingly to what we might broadly call the baby boomers plus, um, so retirees who've had pensions uh, and pension benefits guaranteed and indeed increased uh, since 2010. And at the bottom end, uh, or at least the younger end, increasingly house prices, which didn't fall as dramatically in the United States, with the exception of a few areas in the UK, uh, have meant that increasingly younger people are cut out of the housing market and therefore can't get on that wealth ladder uh, that's been so beneficial to the baby boomers since uh, the 1980s. So I think, and, and increasingly too, we're seeing after the crisis uh, relatively younger uh, workers also suffering the largest reductions in real income. So they depend uh, substantially on on employment income, and they're the groups that have suffered most. So I think in the context of who voted for Corbyn, it's the young who've suffered the most since the crisis. So I'd just like to move now to a more forward-looking question. And I just wanted to ask, on the back of this research, what are your policy recommendations, if any? Should politicians be doing more, in your opinion, to secure the great expectations of their publics? Or should they instead be trying to lower those expectations? Well, if I just start with that, maybe Jeff can um, add on to it. I think the easy answer to this would be to say that at some point, we've got to get off this 
merry-go-round of rising expectations about government intervention, producing financial instability, more and deeper crises, more intervention, and so on. So there is a there is a kind of doom loop implication within our argument that so this is a very, very difficult thing for governments and indeed uh, voters uh, to get off. And it's not therefore clear that the easy answer, well, governments just have to stop intervening and have to try to talk down expectations about government intervention for financial stabilization purposes. It's it's very difficult to see how any elected government in a in a major democracy could do that. And so I think the answer has to be a much more nuanced one. I think we have to accept the existence of these great expectations because the wealth is there. So that poses real dilemmas uh, for governments. And, and I should say that, and perhaps this is where Jeff and I differ in terms of our emphasis, I don't think it's realistic for governments to think that they can actually guarantee housing wealth. Um, it's just too large. And as governments have encouraged uh, people to shift towards defined contribution pensions and away from defined benefit pensions, and of course corporations have been doing this uh, as well, um, it's very difficult to see what governments can do here. I think they're caught on the horns of a real dilemma. The great expectations aren't going away, but it's very difficult for governments to fulfill those expectations through protection of wealth. Yeah, and I, I, just to add to that, I, I would think of it in, in sort of two ways. One, that if we accept the existence of these expectations, and as Andrew you know, said quite nicely, you know, this wealth is not going to go away, neither is this exposure to these types of, of asset markets, then we have to implement policies or, or, or design policies that are better able to prevent these booms, these credit booms, these asset booms from taking hold in the first place. And you know, governments have, have tried in the aftermath of the crisis to implement a whole range of these policies. We often call these macroprudential policies that are designed to lean against the wind of these booms and asset markets that then, you know, lead to these massive interventions when they bust. Now, I my, myself am actually skeptical of the, of the ability of governments to actually implement these particular policies uh, without uh, encountering significant voter dissatisfaction, you know. Everybody or, or lots of people tend to like a boom, and you know uh, the asset rich or those that are invested in these assets are often politically influential and highly mobilized, and so politicians are, are less likely to be uh, rewarded for preventing a crisis that never occurs. But they will be punished by voters who see an asset uh, boom uh, being diminished by intervention. On the back end, once a crisis does occur, if a crisis does occur. You know, my view would be that, you know, governments are actually, you know, they are compelled to intervene, not necessarily to appease their voters or, or in my view, not because they should appease their voters, but because the, the, the broader systemic consequences are, are too great. But once this intervention has been done, I think that the conclusion that our, our research suggests uh, or one of the implications our research suggests is that politicians should should aim to make these rescues much more distributionally fair by ensuring that creditors of these institutions, the banks that are being rescued, actually take a hit on, on their portfolios when the intervention does occur. So we often use the language of that creditors should be bailed in. Yeah, just adding a little bit to that. So I think Jeff's absolutely right that the, the strong implication of our argument is that crisis prevention is absolutely crucial precisely because it's just not credible for governments to promise not to intervene, not to bail out when crises occur. 
And I think, as uh, as Jeff said, uh, when crises do occur, do occur, clearly the costs for creditors need to be uh, more substantial than in the past, and visibly so in terms of the perception of voters. And I think possibly, you know, here we're talking potentially about a whole combination of policy measures that some governments tried, but in a pretty tentative way. So Jeff mentioned earlier top tax rates for the very wealthy. So in the United States and to some extent in the UK as well, uh, the very top end of the income and wealth distributions um, visibly benefited in the years after the crisis. The big interventions, including quantitative easing and so on, boosted the financial asset portfolios of the very wealthiest in society. Tax rates were top, top end tax rates were kept fairly low by historical standards. Very few big bankers went to jail. Many of them retained their jobs um, or retired, you know, in some cases to Greek islands and so on with very large pensions. So uh, there were so many dimensions in which uh, the inter interventions uh, and post-crisis aftermaths looked distributionally unfair to the great majority of voters. And so I think it probably will take a whole combination of different policies to make the interventions that I think, unfortunately, are probably inevitable in the future look much fairer uh, to most voters and therefore generate far less anger than we're seeing at the moment. Thanks very much. I, the only possible other thing um, I thought that you know is a, is a sort of key component of our paper, um, and I don't know whether you wanted to go into this just a little bit, was is that in a... We sort of touched on it just then, but essentially the, the core argument is that democracy encourages uh, rather than checks or constrains this tendency towards more crises, more costly crises and more costly bailouts. So this is a sort of bad news story for democracy in particular. Yeah, I think that that's, that's right. I mean, essentially that, you know, many people in political science before the, the, this crisis were suggesting that democracy was actually served to inhibit uh, these types of, of financial rescues and, and to, to diminish their costs. And what we've observed is that uh, this is actually not the case, that essentially there is a significant structural break that occurs after the 1970s due to what we've discussed uh, today with respect to expectations of voters that has, has have given rise to these increasingly uh, costly uh, interventions. And we can see that uh, these these things are unlikely to, to go away. And I suppose the way I would conclude on this is that, you know, what Andrew and I are concerned about as scholars, but also as voters, is that, that if these anxieties are not dealt with in an in effective way, that these great expectations and frustrations could potentially boil over into something much more, much more pernicious. And, and we hinted that in the paper, suggesting that, you know, part of the aftermath of the recent financial crisis is that we've seen an erosion of democratic norms in some societies due to you know the spilling over of these frustrations. You've been listening to the International Affairs Podcast from Chatham House. To find out more about international affairs and to read our latest issue featuring this article, please visit our website at chathamhouse.org slash publications slash IA. This and other podcasts can be found on the Chatham House website. They are also available via iTunes and Acast. Thanks for listening.